trying to get uh, private corporations to serve social purposes is it, the worst of all worlds because you have to bribe them in order to do it and they end up controlling the terms. Good evening, friends. This is Dick Flax with another episode of Talking Strategy, Making History, joined here by partner Daraka Larimer Hall. And if you've been following us, you know that this season we've been focusing on the theme socialism and its discontents. And just at the time we started the new season, there appeared an article by our guest today, Bob Kuttner. And the article basically involved Bob Kuttner embracing socialism. And I thought this was, it's a rather brilliant article, an extremely ambitious, actually, effort to pull together a number of threads around that theme. Uh, But it's striking because it appears in the American Prospect, a journal that uh, Robert helped to found a number of years ago. And that journal was founded as the, you know, the voice of liberalism within the Democratic Party. And it seemed to me that the fact that Bob, one of the founders of the journal, felt the need to announce this turn in his thinking marks something important in in history, perhaps, and certainly in the uh, evolution of the American progressive movement. And so we reached out to invite Robert Kuttner, one of the most distinguished journalists in America today, someone who's been a guest on this podcast in our last season, to come back and uh, explain himself with respect to this, with respect to this work. Greetings, Bob. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, we're very privileged to have you. So, um, what's the gist of this piece called "Capitalism Versus Liberty"? In the most, is it the most recent issue or the last issue of the American Prospect? Another issue coming out pretty soon. So, tell us about how this happened and and what it is you're trying to say there. It's funny. Uh, it's a very autobiographical piece, which is not something I ordinarily do, and. Um, it struck me that my uh, trajectory, my, my childhood, my political life uh, has a kind of arc to it. And uh, I came of age during this uh, 25-year period when it looked as if activist government uh, anchored in political democracy and a strong labor movement uh, could, could carry out the vision, say, of John Maynard Keynes or of Franklin Roosevelt and harness capitalism for the public good. Uh, when, when I was growing up, the income distribution was becoming more equal and the welfare state was being expanded, labor movement was growing, the whole Marxian picture uh, of uh, workers being immiserated and the state being the executive committee of the ruling class uh, looked silly. It just that didn't describe what was happening. And so uh, it also, in my own lifetime, uh, I'm very much a child of the New Deal. My father died when I was very young, and um, my mother was able to hang on to our house thanks to Social Security and my dad's veterans pension. When my dad got sick, he got uh, 
superb medical care through what was then the uh, socialized medicine for two generations of American men, the, the, the VA. And so I was a new dealer before I'd ever heard of Roosevelt, just, just by dint of family experience. And so the, the promise of uh, activist government, engaged citizens, a strong trade union movement, stabilizing capitalism and devising what Paul Samuelson called a mixed economy looked entirely plausible. And, um, and then uh, beginning in the 70s and more so in the 80s and more so in the 90s, um, the system uh, turns against ordinary people and the Democratic Party turns its back on, on Roosevelt. You have uh, one neoliberal Democratic president after another and um, all of this seeds the ground for Donald Trump uh, as a kind of a backlash uh, in a fashion kind of predicted uh, and described by, by Karl Polanyi who I like rather better than Karl Marx as a critic of capitalism. Uh, but in any case, uh, it became very clear that uh, the post-war period was an anomaly. It was a grand exception to the fact that capitalism generates grotesque inequality. And also the, the, the premise that capitalism goes with liberty, uh, that's also true only to the extent that there's a strong labor movement, a strong state, uh, capitalists are perfectly happy to, to get in bed with fascists. And um, so early in the, in the uh, history of the American prospect, uh, Paul Starr and I had a debate in the pages of the magazine, Paul being my co-founder. And um, the question was whether um, social democracy is the, uh, is the natural heir to liberalism. And Paul said no, and I said yes. And it turned out we were both wrong because social democracy, let alone liberalism, was not robust to contain capitalism. And all of the European countries that embrace social democracy have turned out to be just another species of neoliberal. So I conclude from all of this that um, if you are going to have a decent society, you need to go beyond liberalism. If you're going to have enlightenment values, you need to go beyond, let's say, New Deal liberalism. And I've, I've often been asked, what's the difference between social democracy and democratic socialism? I think the difference is the degree of public ownership. Uh, social democracy, at least as defined in Western Europe, is basically welfare capitalism. And welfare capitalism isn't strong enough. There are fiscal contradictions, there are political contradictions. So if you want the kind of uh, robust egalitarian economy, you need enough public social ownership not necessarily public ownership, but social ownership, to really weaken capitalists as a political force, as well as creating greater <clears throat> economic uh, equality. So after uh, a long odyssey, uh, that's where I come out. And as I say in the piece, um, I don't think I've become more Marxian. I think the world has become more Marxian. Right. So many threads there that we're going to try to at least touch on as we have this conversation. But let's focus on the on really what the conclusion is that you just uh, alluded to, the social ownership uh, as a key definition of the qualitative difference between a framework called socialist and a framework called social democracy or the welfare state. And, you know, one of the interesting things 
And one of the, I think, reasons Dirac and I wanted to have this podcast series on socialism is because the term has gotten to back into the political discourse of this country because of Bernie Sanders most particularly. But yet his definition in the campaigns didn't involve social ownership. I don't think there's a single plank of his of his presidential platform uh, where social ownership is foregrounded. It's much more fulfillment, right, of of European social de- democracy extending to this country where we've never had it. That's health care uh, and uh, work and labor protections and uh, uh, child care kinds of things that we all need and that actually would solve many many of our problems. But they're not exactly different from social democracy. Uh, because I think, let me add, my understanding that in Vermont... Bernie has been much more uh, supportive of actual examples of what you mean by social ownership than he was saying during the campaign. Yeah. Let's start with with Europe for a minute. Let's go to Bernie. So one of my heroes is Karl Polanyi. And um, there was a period in in, in, uh, Vienna uh, when it was known as Red Vienna. And Vienna was a hotbed of municipal socialism. And... uh, there was all kinds of social ownership. There was the world's best uh, social housing to this day. There's a legacy of that, a lot of social housing. And they had taxes on people who had servants to support uh, child care and kindergartens. And they had unemployment, uh, very generous unemployment comp run through the trade unions. They had municipal gas and electricity and water. And the problem, of course, was that uh, Red Vienna could not exist as a socialist island in a capitalist sea, uh, much less a socialist island in a fascist sea. And to some extent, I think that's befallen social democratic Europe, where uh, global neoliberalism makes it very, very hard for an individual country to have high levels of taxation and um, uh, support a welfare state simply by dint of tax and spend. And um, it's interesting, this week, um, the Socialist Party, which is a left party in Portugal, became the only left government in Western Europe, maybe in the entire world, uh, maybe with the exception of Chile, to have a uh, an absolute majority in the Portuguese parliament. And uh, this has become the exception. And it's become the exception, I think, because so many social democratic parties have become another species of neoliberal party. And that's not necessarily because they're sellouts, it's because, although some of them are, it's because of the lar- larger circumstances in which they operate, globalized neoliberalism. And so um, you, you need a degree of, of, of economic nationalism, but in a progressive sense, and you need a degree of social ownership. Now, housing is a, is a very, very good example. And uh, Bernie, uh, as mayor of Burlington, uh, championed socially owned housing, not not traditional uh, public housing necessarily, but housing that can never uh, revert to market priced housing. And there are lots of different ways of doing this. Uh, they have some of it in Canada. You can have limited equity co-ops. Uh, you can have uh, land banks of various kinds. And if you compare that with the way we subsidize housing for uh, 
moderate income people in the United States, uh, we basically bribe capitalists by giving them tax breaks and uh, or by giving uh, poor people housing vouchers that then make landlords richer. And rather than creating a permanent supply of social housing, uh, it just enriches landlords and uh, there's never enough of it to go around. And because it's scarce, prices keep being bid up. And so the social subsidy is like running after a bus that's, uh, that's accelerating faster than you are. You, you never create a durable supply of social housing. So there's a kind of a textbook case of the need for social ownership, where you take housing out of the market sector altogether, and you have it be socially owned, and it's permanently socially owned, and then you add to the supply uh, over time. So that's, uh, that's one example. Uh, public banking uh, is another example. And um, uh, some kinds of, uh, of socialized industry uh, is another example. I mean, why, why should broadband be something that you have to buy from either Comcast or from the phone company? In Chattanooga, as a legacy of uh, Roosevelt and the TVA, uh, you have the fastest internet in the country, and it's also the cheapest internet in the country. It's socially owned. For 69 bucks a month, you get one gig of internet, which provides uh, TV, uh, internet access, and phone service. That's about half the price that any private provider can, uh, can deliver it for. And so you not only insulate um, the society from predatory capitalism, but you also demonstrate that socialism is actually more efficient than capitalism uh, much of the time. Dirac has spent a great deal of time in the midst of social de democracy in, in Scandinavia and still uh, recently went to Sweden, is going back there shortly. Uh, what's your thoughts at this point in the conversation? Well, I mean, I, I think that's a really good uh, overview of sort of where getting us caught up to where we're at uh, in terms of the role that socialism and capitalism play in the thinking of, you know, social social democratic governments and people trying to turn that into policy. Um, I think that's that's a, a pretty pretty darn good surmisal of it. I think um, the what's what's interesting and, and by the way, just backing up, I mean I read your piece and really enjoyed it. I think it's really good. I hope it gets wide uh, wide readership and I'm and I'm interested personally in sort of what kind of responses you've gotten, what you've responses you've gotten from other self-identified liberals or people who maybe defined themselves as somewhat skeptical or to the right of socialism. Um, and the just a thought I would throw out there, and, and we should uh, all remind each other to put, put links to all of these things in the uh, episode notes, but the uh, around the same time that, that uh, uh, Michael's piece came out, um, uh, Thomas Piketty's new book uh, uh, about socialism and it's a, a collection of essays that he's published over the last few years, but with this really excellent uh, introduction in which he, um, maybe in a little bit overly of, uh, economist uh, or sort of engineer approach, tries to give an introduction to like what is a case for socialism, what is what would socialism kind of look like, and what what really struck me was the similarity to uh, in your arguments about coming from a, uh, a a place of kind of 
yeah, believing uh, in markets, looking at the collapse of the Soviet Union and so forth, and then coming to a very kind of like rational uh, analysis or, or conclusion that, you know, when watching watching markets unleashed, they didn't actually accomplish the things we maybe thought they would. So um, I think I know you re- you've reviewed that book, you've reflected on it. So I'd also love to see your or hear your perspectives on that. And then one other piece <laughs> that is kind of the uh, an interesting companion is I don't know if either of you have checked out um, this piece in the Atlantic by David Brooks about conservatism, um, which the the overlap and what's interesting is that he also is telling this this autobiography of starting as a socialist and then seeing go, moving to Chicago and seeing public housing in a horrible state, then sort of discovering the, the, the uh, Austrians and Burke, uh, et cetera. And I think it's sort of funny because it's sort of, he right away recognizes the racist strain in conservative thinking, but um, eventually that kind of catches up with him and he's like, that's kind of all that's left right now in conservatism, so I'm out. But anyway, it's a kind of reverse story that's, that's interesting. And I guess if either of you have read it or thought about it, I'd love to hear your take. But anyway, those are some of my, my reflections. Thanks a lot for coming. Sure. Those are great questions. Let me, let me start out with Scandinavia. I mean, I continue to be uh, a huge fan of, of Swedish social democracy, and they have managed to hold out, uh, along with the Norwegians, uh, sort of better than almost anybody else. They're, they're very adaptive. On the other hand, the European Union, as a kind of a, a repository of neoliberalism, keeps making inroads on the Swedish model and uh, undercutting the rights of trade unions. The, 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 the Swedish model, as you know, is, is very deliberately not statist. It's, it's a consensual social bargaining model based on very strong trade unions. And uh, some of the rulings of the European Court of Justice have undercut the rights of, uh, of Swedish trade unions, making it harder for the Swedes to have their own model. Um, so even Swedish social democracy, to some extent, is under assault. And they also made the mistake of trying to steal the thunder of the neoliberals by injecting more market competition into the public sector. And that has also uh, backfired and peeled off some of their core working class uh, support. So I think the the social democratic compromise is under uh, uh, assault everywhere. Now, in response to the question of how people responded to this, um, you know, a lot of uh, my, my DSA friends and other socialist friends, you know, wrote me kind of sweet notes saying, uh, welcome, comrade, we knew you were one of us all along. Which was that effect. Uh, uh, I did not get a lot of pushback from liberals because it's awfully hard to challenge the argument that in terms of what it delivers for ordinary working people, liberalism has gotten pretty threadbare. Certainly Democratic presidents since Carter have failed to deliver for working people the way Roosevelt did, and that has uh, seeded the ground uh, for Trump. Now, Piketty. Um, so when the New York Times sent me a note and, and said, uh, would you like to review this book? I said, sure. And then I read the book, and I was slightly appalled that Piketty, because he's a celebrity, 
um, gets away with writing a 26-page essay and tacking it on to several dozen recycled Le Monde columns and calling it a book. But because it's Piketty, and the fact that this little essay is Piketty's conversion to socialism, uh, I was uh, as kind as I possibly could be to the book, consistent with intellectual honesty, uh, because I thought it was very important that that, that be out there. And of course, Piketty getting away with this uh, is an example of how celebrity gets commodified. Uh, your ordinary author could not could not sell a 28-page original essay pegged to a bunch of recycled columns and call it a book. But uh, because everything gets commodified, Piketty is taking advantage of his own celebrity and selling it, and God bless him because it's a, it's a good message. And the message is basically here's a guy who starts out as a, as a kind of virtuoso um, economic statistical historian of moderately leftish politics, but certainly not a socialist, and writes this, you know, incredibly dense book. That, that, the, the ratio of people who bought that book and put it on their coffee table, the people who actually read it, has to set some kind of record, but capitalism in the 21st century was a bestseller. And basically, uh, he demonstrates that uh, because of the logic of uh, returns on capital uh, compounding faster than GDP grows, capitalist economies grow more unequal over time. It's just inherent in capitalist economies. And the only exception is this anomalous period in the middle of the 20th century. So Piketty, after writing another even more dense book, um, comes to the conclusion that capitalism is just going to keep generating more and more uh, inequality, and if you want to do something about this, you have to be some sort of socialist. So uh, it's interesting. I mean, he's a you know a, a, a virtuoso technical economist. Uh, I'm more of a what a dilettante, <laughs> but we we come to the same uh, sorts of uh, uh, conclusions. Well, do you both have the same emphasis on what the, the heart of a socialist? Uh, path would look like. You're emphasizing social ownership. He has a different um, focus, doesn't he, on income redistribution? Yeah, and I think income distribution is much tougher. Because uh, if, if you start, uh, and this is one of the problems of the welfare state, and this, this is a criticism of the welfare state that has come from both the left and from the right. It's come from neo-Marxists, it's come from neoconservatives. And uh, the, uh, if you have an, an inordinate degree of inequality. Uh, in fact, Beveridge made this point in the 1940s. You, 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 you want the welfare state to spend money on what the Brits call social income, right? Um, Health care, child care, uh, things that you get as a citizen. If, on the other hand, you start out with so much income inequality that the welfare state goes broke uh, uh, dealing with the income inequality, then it doesn't have the money for all these popular public services, and it has to tax people at a higher rate, which makes it politically unpopular. So I think, um, I think I'm borrowing from one of my friends at EPI, pre-distribution is better than redistribution. It, it's much better if you start out with a more egalitarian income distribution to begin with, and you can get that 
through things like uh, better distribution of wages. You can get that through uh, the Peter Barnes idea of uh, uh, distributing property rights in the commons. If, uh, if the taxpayer and the government generates scientific breakthroughs that then uh, uh, platform monopolies or drug companies capture all of the monopoly rents on, that's not fair. And uh, the average citizen should get a piece of the action. Barnes' uh, analogy is the Alaska Permanent Fund, where in, instead of uh, giving North, North Slope oil to the oil companies, uh, this, this anomalous Republican governor uh, decides, hey, let's give it to the citizens of uh, Alaska. So every year, every man, woman, and child gets a check from the, from the state government of Alaska. And uh, even though Alaska tends to uh, elect Republicans, nobody is opposed to the Alaska Permanent Fund. And so if you can um, socialize wealth either by giving everybody a piece of the action uh, or by having more social ownership, then you do not have to have as much heroic redistribution of income. Now, that said, I'm all in favor of a universal basic income. And that is something where you're going to have to have the tax revenues uh, to come up with the money. But, but that way, uh, it, it's a kind of a more grandiose version of the child tax credit. You don't have to worry about what students of the welfare state call cliff effects, where as your income goes up, your welfare benefits go down because everybody gets it. And so it's a foundation upon which to build uh, other forms of, uh, of income uh, in, in, uh, via, via labor. So I think it's a, it's a mix of a social ownership, both in the sense of government ownership, but also in the sense of individuals owning a piece of the collective economy and getting dividend checks uh, as, as citizens of that economy and deliberate income distribution. I grew up at the same time that you did and, and had the same experience, even though I was a red diaper baby and believed, you know, that Marx probably was the, was the Bible. Um, in, in college and in my graduate education, I learned over and over again that Marx had been superseded by the capacity of capitalism with a with partnership of the government, a mixed economy, as you put it, uh, to actually solve the very problems of um, immiseration and uh, gross inequality uh, that Marx wanted to cure by socialism. And that's what we learned. Uh, that was essential. Even people like C. Wright Mills, they basically were saying, yeah, capitalism can solve the uh, problems of uh, impoverishment, but but um, power would be concentrated in elites. And Marcuse, similarly, the, the working class is going to be inert because their economics uh, situation is going to be uh, adequate. Uh, so we need, um, you know, a, a different kind of revolution, uh, you know, more psychological or cultural than... Uh, than uh, the Marxian one. And that was the, the currency of thought among everybody, pretty much, who was, who was talking in the intellectual sphere back in, in the 50s, certainly, and even much into the 60s. But so out of that comes the new left. And I was there at Port Huron. We had this conversation uh, 
and people like Tom Hayden, who was the primary author of the Port Huron Statement, they said, well, why do we need that word socialism? Let us invent a new alternative vision. And in the, in the statement, he used this unwieldy John Dewey term, participatory democracy. It's hard to build a political slogan around that, but that was intended to embrace aspects of the socialist vision, but not in, but put it on a more American footing. And I, by the way, mentioned Dewey because in my little bit of further investigation of what he was trying to do politically, it was a similar thing decades before. Uh, we need an American left. Capitalism is not adequate for democracy or for uh, hu human survival, but uh, we need to we need to have a vocabulary that's American, not European, to, to uh, frame it. And that's been my politics until Bernie comes along and shows that you can have a popular support with social, the word socialism. And, and I think we're, we're trying I, I mean, on this podcast, and you you're made a major contribution to the effort to let's put, what's the definition of that? What do we even mean by that, given 150 years of experience with uh, systems that call themselves socialists that, uh, shall we say, have not worked in the directions that they that they promised or claimed. So I'm, I'm just part of, this is not a big question, but a, a, to me an interesting tactical question about politics. If, let's say, Elizabeth Warren is running against Bernie Sanders, imagine this, and um, He's a democratic socialist. He says, no, I'm not a socialist, but I am for workers being elected to uh, boards of directors of the major corporations, and I am for major subsidies for uh, child care, and I am for uh, getting rid of student debt and so on and so forth. Um, and I, I don't know who you actually endorse personally in that race, but um, a lot of people on the left that I know say, well, Warren has a better chance. Why don't we? Um, why don't we just get in line about her? It turned out to be politically not true that she had a better chance, but for a while it looked that way. Anyway, that's a practical political problem about messaging, so to speak, about language, about framing. What's the value of actually bringing the word socialism back into a definition of what we are for as progressives as as liberals. In fact, you say we need socialism to save liberalism. So let's add that to the mix of things for you to talk about. Uh, well, <laughs> Bernie is so important here because Bernie has been using uh, the self-descriptive term socialism all of his life. And he's demonstrated that if you're a straight shooter, if you're not corrupt, if you deliver for ordinary people, uh, they're going to say, yeah, he's my guy. And if he... Uh, if he says that's socialism, then I'm a socialist, and I'm certainly going to vote for him. And, of course, the public opinion polls remarkably demonstrate that uh, a majority of people under, what, 35 have a positive view of socialism. Not surprisingly, given the kind of capitalism that they've grown up under. Now, you get to the issue of messaging. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, for her own reasons, has decided that um, she's not going to call herself a socialist. I've never, I've never asked her why not, but she's just made that decision. And uh, I think in substance, their politics overlap very, very heavily. 
the tragedy of, uh, of 2016 and 2020, for that matter, is that if they both hadn't been running, one of them would have been the nominee and the president because they, they split what was clearly a majoritarian tendency in the, in the Democratic primary electorate. But I think, I think Bernie has demonstrated that socialism can be a good word. And uh, as I said in that piece, uh, I resisted the word for a long time for a couple of reasons. First of all, I thought I was a left liberal or a social democrat. Secondly, I, I don't like, didn't like, and still don't like the, the sectarianism that socialists uh, tend, to, uh, tend to fall into. And uh, the proof of the pudding is DSA, which, which uh, you know, should be absolutely riding high right now and damned if it isn't falling into the kind of sectarianism that, that socialists just have this horrible tendency of falling into uh, since Adam and Eve. And, um, and I guess uh, the third reason I resisted it is that for the most part, um, it, it doesn't seem American. Now, Bernie proved that that's, that's not the case. And, and so, uh, and you might as well be hanged for a sheep. The, the right is going to call you a socialist even if you call yourself a social democrat or a left liberal, and you might as well uh, say what you mean. Um, that doesn't mean that a majority of the electorate thinks socialism is a good word, which means we have a bit of a selling job to do. But, uh, I mean, I think the, the easier point to make is the rapaciousness of 21st century capitalism which keeps being demonstrated every single day of the week and the way it just screws working people. And Trump uh, has a kind of a completely fake version of that. And uh, the Democratic left uh, needs to have a, an authentic version of it, which, which really delivers for working people. I got to sit in on uh, a focus group of, of uh, swing voters who turn out intermittently. And most of them have given up on politics. Most of them don't see a difference between the two parties, don't worry that America is about to go fascist. And one woman said, um, the, 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 the moderator, the facilitator, asked about, uh, well, what, what do you think the government might do in a positive way? And one person said, well, gee, I heard that we're going to do something about student debt. Well, in fact, Biden for the second time or maybe the third time has just put off collecting student debt. And this woman says, God, if they actually did that, that would just save the lives of tens of millions of people. And wouldn't that be incredible if the government just kind of canceled student debt? So I was practically jumping up and down with frustration because Biden could do this with a stroke of a pen. And, um, and that would get an enormous amount of attention. And Biden, who I think is doing a, a pretty good job under horrible circumstances, I'm afraid that the inference that he's going to draw from the blockage of Build Back Better and Mansion and Cinema and all of that is to temporize instead of doing a Harry Truman 1948 and just going bigger, going, going all the way to sort of be a populist and be a scourge of capitalists. Yeah, and the press is is push a lot of articles that push in that direction very hard uh, are happening. So Duraka, jump in. Uh, I'm glad you kind of pivoted over to talk about the current 
situation and the Biden administration. And I always really appreciate your thoughts on the play-by-play in Washington um, and encourage our listeners to always look for Robert Kuttner's uh, byline on analysis of what's going on there. It's always really great. Um, So, yeah, so what's your take on why why Biden specifically on an issue like on on the issue of uh, student debt um, isn't trying to like get a W in our column when exactly when we're the agendas being log jammed in in Congress? Is it is it because he's is it his background as being, you know, the guy from the finance capital or the the debt capital um, and something that simple or or how, how worried are you that it's a, a more strategic uh, retreat from really like a high point of pretty robust progressive uh, rhetoric and policy proposals that were coming out uh, over the last year or so. So is it a sign of worse to come or not? I don't necessarily think so. So let's let's divide the question. I mean, obviously, you you can't blame Biden for the fact that he doesn't have the votes. And he's done a fantastic job in appointing the most progressive regulators and other cabinet and sub-cabinet officials since FDR. I mean, I never thought I would live to see the day when a Democratic president appointed senior people, some of whom are to the left of me. It's just absolutely extraordinary. So then the question is, why doesn't he do more with executive orders? And he's done some really good stuff with executive orders. I mean, he's he, he toughened the order on, on contractors, uh, having to pay at least $15, $15 an hour, not just on the federal contracts, as in the Davis-Bacon Act, but anybody who's a federal contractor has to pay all of their employees, whether they work on that contract or not, at least $15 an hour. And he's done some, some really good stuff on, on corporate concentration. Um, I would like to see him just go for broke on stuff like student debt. The government has the uh, power to put a lot of uh, pharmaceuticals where there's price gouging into the public domain and contract with uh, companies to just make generics. And I don't know whether they're worried about the effect on the deficit or they're worried about um, the argument. And I think it's a spurious argument that because the average person doesn't have a college degree, you're using general fiscal resource to, to, to support people who are above median income. I mean, if you unpack that, it's the kids from working class families whose parents don't pay the tuition who have to go deeply into debt to go to college. And it's those upwardly mobile, striving people, middle quintiles, who are drowning in debt it's, it's debtor's prison. And, and if, uh, you know, if Biden were to declare a debt jubilee, that would be front page news and he would get enormous acclaim for it. And I'm sure that there have been uh, debates inside about whether this is a good thing to do or not. And uh, I hope desperation <laughs> will, will force him to do it because he will be so uh, right. in, in need of a win. Well, your article made me think, uh, changed a lot of my thinking, This the question of raising social ownership as a concrete, practical matter in current society, uh, which I had sort of 
you know, marginalize that question given all the other problems that are happening. But here, here's a situation now happening in California that I think is illustrates your argument and also may be useful for us to highlight just because people need to be aware of this. The Public Utilities Commission of this state has decided that there's too much subsidy for people who have rooftop solar uh, installations, that that is... Um, uh, those subsidies, which include uh, tax write-offs for an installation, but also um, rebates for uh, electricity generated by your solar system that go back into the grid. And the utility companies, privately owned utility companies, uh, argue that the more that people put solar on their roof, the more that poor people who can't afford to do that um, have to pay the bills to keep the grid going. And to me, and the governor is caught in between powerful environmental and solar industry forces on the one hand and other forces, including some unions, who uh, continue to support the utility kind of argument. Um, but that argument only makes sense because we have profit-seeking private utilities controlling the uh, the electricity. Uh, if if uh, if you had a single public uh, public utility system that was not that was owned by the public, you could allocate these issues in a different way. You wouldn't have to uh, charge these, you know, charge some people to pay more for the grid. Uh, in order to keep the private companies in business. And it's true that the pri and it's a real dilemma. It's not just greed. They have to pay tremendous amounts, I believe, because of the degree to which their operations have caused major fires in, in California. And so we, we this is, a, to me, an example of where, and this wasn't, wasn't this true in the, in, the F, in the New Deal period, that the, the need for public ownership of power was so evident because the pri there was no way for private uh, investment to create the power sources that were needed. That's why we have the Bonneville Power Project in the Northwest, the TVA in the South, uh, and those things were privatized very quickly, many of them after, after the war. Big campaign to privatize uh, utilities. Um, so I never thought about this until I read your article. This is actually... A foreground, a foregroundable um, po policy debate that could should be, uh, I think, part of the discussion right now. We've got a. It would be catastrophic for California, in my opinion, for California to reduce support for solar installations. I mean, in the midst, we're supposed to be a, a global leader as a state in in this. There's, I mean, there's more complexity to this issue, but. Uh, I'm just partly just saying people should go read your article and see how it affects your thinking uh, about all of these issues because it certainly affected me. Well, you know, this is an area where Roosevelt was more radical, where Roosevelt was actually a socialist, uh, where where the New Deal went beyond uh, just stabilizing capitalism. And uh, Roosevelt was deeply committed to public power. Uh, he used the phrase yardstick competition. It's a wonderful phrase. He demonstrated that public power was more efficient than private power. 
because it could get economies of scale and it didn't need to make a profit. And so he would use public power to show the true cost of power and force the private utilities to reduce their costs. And he would also use public power <clears throat> to uh, bring electricity to rural areas that were not profitable for private power. And actually, even though there was a lot of pressure to privatize uh, a lot of this stuff after the war, for the most part, TVA resisted it. And um, uh, I, I believe Bonneville is still public power and the REA co-ops are still public power. And the, the market share of, of the, uh, the socially owned utilities has been pretty stable for 50 or 60 years. So, <clears throat> I mean, you need more cases like this where y you can demonstrate that not only is social ownership more equitable, but it's more efficient. Certainly, certainly true of banks. I mean, one of the great travesties was the privatization of Fannie Mae. The, the original Fannie Mae was a public socialized institution. It worked like a Swiss watch, never lost any money, never, never tried to slice and dice uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities to, to rip off investors. And um, in 1969, it was privatized. And once it was privatized, it just uh, became uh, another profit-maximizing, corruptible institution. So I, I think we need to uh, reclaim a legacy, not just of the greater equity of social ownership, but the greater efficiency of social ownership. And, and this brings me back to David Brooks uh, and public housing in Chicago, because the, the history of public housing is very interesting. It's, you, you can't talk about why public housing went bad without talking about the role of racism. And um, uh, as you know, Dick, uh, the, the original public housing was public housing for working class people, white people, although there were some segregated uh, complexes for black people, but you had to be well behaved to prove that you deserve to be in public housing. And um, then as um, America uh, suburbanizes based on a lot of public subsidy of highways and automobiles, um, public housing becomes the residual housing of the poor. And then when it becomes uh, housing for, for black people, uh, there is no social investment in it. There are no jobs. And uh, it, it, it becomes uh, housing for, uh, for welfare recipients. And they just drop social standards of, of, of good behavior. And, and you can't talk about public housing going down the drain without talking about American racism. And there are communities where public housing is still much sought after, is still good housing. Uh, some of the public housing, uh, even in New York City and in smaller cities, is still quite decent housing. So there's another case where uh, the, 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 the racism that unfortunately was a blemish on the New Deal, as well as the rest of the society, uh, ends up undermining um, a, a socialized uh, institution. But that doesn't mean that uh, public housing is ruined for all time. Yeah, and in fact, in, in our town here, I think 15% of the housing units are publicly developed. And you, you, if you see the apartment complexes that are done by our housing authority, they're indistinguishable. Their design and and beauty are actually rival anything that's been done privately. They're highly desirable and they're 
actually very affordable for low-income people, uh, and now the housing authority, if we had the, the degree of social investment in housing that we need, um, that authority would have capacity to develop a lot more workforce housing, middle middle class housing, than it has been able to do. Um, yeah, and this is very much on the agenda of, I think, more and more people in California, more and more activism is quickly building around these uh, this this kind of um, issue. I, I my parents lived in a housing co-op in Brooklyn uh, with uh, five very sizable buildings called Kingsview. There was an even bigger co-op called Queensview. These were built by consortiums, I think, of nonprofits and trade unions and so forth uh, in the fifties. And that there was, in terms of Red Vienna, I kind of think. There was a, a, a parallel housing development in New York City uh, after World War II, somewhat like Red Vienna. But m- much of that got privatized. Well, yep. uh, interesting story. Uh, I mean, my parents, uh, uh, I was born in Parkchester, in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And Parkchester was another one of these nonprofits developed by MetLife uh, with, with uh, tax breaks. But interestingly, uh, due to a fortunate quirk, so there were three of these big complexes built at the time in the early 40s, Stuyvesant Town, Peter Cooper Village, and Parkchester. And um, when market prices just become too attractive to uh, not give in to, Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village get privatized. Parkchester, they attempt to privatize it, but the Bronx is still too unfashionable. And so the guy who tries to privatize it goes bust, and it goes back into nonprofit ownership. And today, Parkchester uh, in the Bronx, uh, you can get uh, a quite decent two or three bedroom unit for a couple of hundred thousand bucks. It's sort of lower middle class, upper working class, uh, affordable housing. And it's, it's quite nice. And uh, due to a little twist of fate, uh, Parkchester was, was spared the fate of Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper Village. So this stuff is doable. It just takes political will and and political organizing. So I just wanted to pull out and underline something uh, that uh, Robert said that I think is really interesting. Um, That, uh, you know, that socialism uh, encourages us, our socialist outlook encourages us to take options that even though they're the most controversial or the most opposed by the wealthier corporations are like the most efficient for society and, and really, and, and even corporations benefit from it and so forth. But we've been really scared away. Even, even self-proclaimed socialists and policymakers in Europe are, have been scared away from those kinds of more public or communally controlled or democratically controlled options um, uh, you know, since, uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union and the neoliberal turn, et cetera. But um, an example of that, right, it, and you, in your piece, you don't talk as much about the environment as in some other, some other areas, right, is that um, there are, there's more than one way that we can, you know, address climate change and kind of like force the economy to to restructure, there's a socialist way to do that, and there's a less socialist way to do that. And the issue that Dick uh, raises with, um, you know, California wanting to meet its goal 
uh, of uh, leading on installations for uh, of solar panels. Like the the way we chose to do that, not only is it you know fucked with by the private utilities, but the whole rollout of it and the whole way we did it was privatized, was private and capitalist, right? It was the government giving up a little, like putting out a little bit of money, often in the in 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 tax credits, right, which are kind of neoliberal to to begin with, to make it more profitable for private companies to build solar panels on privately owned homes. And now the debate is like, oh, can we roll that out to the poor? And are they unfair? Whatever. It's all very, I think, quite cynical. Um, and, uh, and what it's meant is that, you know, the, the quality of jobs and the pay and the safety uh, of, for workers that have done all the work to put up those solar panels is like the worst in the construction industry as well. So we could have taken a high road public way to do that but we took the capitalist road even to address climate change. Well, and there's a, there's a larger point here, and that is trying to get uh, private corporations to serve social purposes is the worst of all worlds because you have to bribe them in order to do it, and they end up controlling the terms. There's a marvelous article that was written uh, in 1978 by my colleague Paul Starr and his former colleague Justa Espring Anderson, who's a Danish-born sociologist, one of the one of the great students of comparative welfare state, called Passive Intervention. And I still assign it to my students. And the point is that the United States, because we don't have the votes to do it right, we end up with with the most inefficient possible way of achieving social objectives we have to bribe private industry to do it. And so you get very inefficient housing, you get very inefficient delivery of healthcare, and uh, it's so much more efficient to just have public institutions to serve public purposes. And that's a debate we need to reclaim. We need to have the debate and we need to, uh, we need to win the debate. Right. Well, I hope, by the way, that uh, the American Prospect, which Bob Kuttner is one of the founders of and one of the editors of, uh, that you will have more articles that do that. That, that um, I, I think you and I first encountered each other when you were editing working papers for A New Society, which was a journal that was entirely devoted to alternative uh, imagination and, and uh, happenings. And we need that back very much now. If we, if we have the political space to actually imagine that uh, these these imaginings can come into being. But you, you've made a great contribution with the magazine and all the work that you've done uh, to awakening our awarenesses. And this particular article we've been highlighting today called uh, Capitalism Versus Liberty. And we haven't even discussed that particular uh, theme that much, but we, we, we're running out of uh, time right now. I We're going to post the article on our Facebook page uh, so people can get uh, access to it. Uh, and you even have a little bibliography embedded in that article, which was kind of useful, of recent books. It, more, more than even we've just discussed, there's a growing little literature of socialism now, you might say, and it's all very pertinent to what we're trying to do here on the podcast. I uh, have any final words, Daraka, before we bid good, goodbye to our comrade? <clears throat> 
just that as we are speaking, I'm on the prospect.org website where I'm joining at the politics level uh, to get uh, access to it and home delivery. It's a great deal. So um, shameless plug. Um, it is a very great, very good read. One of the, I think one of the best uh, political journals uh, in, in the world and certainly in the United States. So thanks a lot. So you get the last word, Bob Kuttner. Uh, we're very glad that you've been with us. Well, just thanks for having me. I mean, on the capitalism and liberty point, um, capitalism is the enemy of liberty, right? Capitalism constrains the ability of working people to earn a decent living. And uh, capitalism is balkanizing science by, by having non-disclosure agreements required of people who are doing science based on, on public subsidy. And it's constraining our liberties uh, via what Shoshana Zuboff has called surveillance capitalism, which is the whole business model of the platform monopolies. And we could do a whole other session of this podcast on all the ways that capitalism, not socialism, constrains liberties and all the ways socialism enhances liberties. So I think that's a good note to end on. And thank you so much for having me. I've seen my brothers working throughout this mighty land. I prayed we'd get together and together make a stand. Then we might own those banks of marble with a guard at every door. And we would share those vaults of silver that we have sweated for.